Well, in 1962, the Cold War dominating the news, as was the race to space was dominating the news back in those days. And it was during that time that President John F. Kennedy gave a speech at Rice University wherein he answered the question of why we needed to go to the moon. He answers that obvious question, why go? He responds by saying, well, why climb the highest mountain? Why fly the Atlantic 35 years before? He says, we choose to go to the moon and do other things in this decade, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. We choose to go to the moon and do other things that are not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Friends, far too many presidents and professors and even pastors don't talk like that much anymore. We spend more time today talking about how we can make things easier on ourselves than we do in talking about doing hard things to accomplish great things. And yet we do all of this knowing that nothing great has been accomplished on the easy. Nothing embodies that, of course, more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we find, friends, is, is for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. And as it was for him, so it will be for his church. This morning we come to the story of King Josiah, who for the joy set before him brought about great reform to Judah. And so I want to use this story in 2 Kings 22 and 23 as a way of reminding our own church of our own vision as to what we're trying to do in the life of our church. A vision that is to be done in the life of our church, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. With our eyes set upon the eternal glory of Christ, we at this church labor to do at least six things. We do more, but we do at least six things that are embodied in this passage. We hear, we repent, we commit, we destroy, we remember, and we love. Don't worry, I'll come back to those later. But that's what we're going to see this morning. Again, let this passage remind us what we, by God's grace, are endeavoring to do as a church. God set us to do. Well, setting up the story here, these are some of the final chapters of the book of Kings. Remember, 1st and 2nd Kings was always one book. So we're finding ourselves at the end of 2nd Kings. Uh, Next week, we'll conclude the book. We'll come to the end. The week after that, we'll do a review sermon. And then, Lord willing, we will have Easter together. Uh, But before we do, before we get to that ending, we need to ascend some of the greatest heights of the Old Testament. In the story of King Josiah, Uh, we'll consider him today before we descend to some of the greatest depths next week as we will consider the exile of Judah. And we've been seeing throughout the book of Kings, our study here, we've been seeing three things. We've been seeing the Lord's power above all earthly rulers. We've been seeing the Lord's primacy in worship that he will not share his glory with another. And we've been seeing the Lord's promise to King David to have a forever king in his line. And in recent weeks, we've seen the exile of Israel because of its idolatry. That's those northern tribes. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, we saw the deeper slide of its idolatry last week in the rule of Manasseh. Manasseh's son, as we saw last week, was murdered. And the people placed up a son of David by the name of Josiah to be king on the throne of Judah. And so here's what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk right through these two chapters, sort of telling you the truth, telling you the story And then I'll come back into those six things that I mentioned before. So looking at the top there, 2 Kings 22, we learn right from the top that there that Josiah is only eight years old when he begins to reign. And Josiah goes on to reign for a long time, for some 31 years there in Jerusalem. And when we have him described, there's a familiar description of him. But there's a little bit of flair in this description of Josiah. Look at verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And so the flair is in that walking in all the way of David his father. That should kind of raise our eyebrows a bit. It sounds like this king could be the answer to to the promise of David. We've heard a lot of descriptions of uh, kings, but we've not yet heard one as hopeful as this one. And so while we know that the answer to the promise of David is not Josiah, 
Josiah does help us because he shows us a lot of what Christ's ministry will be like. Walking in the way of David. Well, in verses 3 to 6, Josiah sends this guy by the name of Shaphan. He's a secretary uh, to Josiah. He sends him over to the house of the Lord. That's the temple where he's gone over there to count the money collected for the repairs that they're making on the temple at the time. And if this sounds familiar to some of us, it should. This is similar to what Joash, King Joash did during his reign, kind of helping the temple get rebuilt a bit. But anyway, Shaphan goes over there. He meets with the high priest, Hilkiah, and uh, encourages him to give the collection of this money over to the repair contractors, as it were, that are rebuilding the, uh, the, uh, the temple. And the text goes out of its way to talk about how these repair contractors are very honest people. I'm not sure why that is, but the text keeps mentioning it. So there it is. Maybe you can have a better answer for it. But nevertheless, these repair contractors are very honest people with this money, helping them rebuild the temple. But in the midst of this, going over there to try to get that collection money, uh, Hilkiah, that great high priest, he's back there in the temple fishing out the cash where that money was collected. And what does he find but a Bible? Take a look at verse 8. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. It's interesting that he says a book. Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And when Shaphan read it before the king, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, friends, this book of the law that they found was indeed the Bible. Now, at this point, it is nothing but either, depending on how you read that, either the first five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis down to Deuteronomy or just the book of Deuteronomy itself, sometimes referred to as the book of the law. But this book of the law, again, is the Bible. It's, we might say, the Torah, the law. And apparently it had gotten dusty during the long reign of Manasseh, who for the most part had departed from this faith until the end, of course. And so it is discovered, this Bible is discovered, the the dust is sort of blown off of it and begun to be read because it hadn't in decades or considered in decades. And as soon as it is read, it becomes clear that everything, and I do mean everything, is not as it should be in Judah. The priesthood is not as it should be as they read the Bible. Right? The throne of the kingdom, as it were, is not as it should be. The people are not as they should be. When, when read, this book, as they're reading it, this book becomes clear. It is a testimony against Judah. Now, it may come a surprise to some of you to know that the Pentateuch, or at least the book of Deuteronomy, was written as a testimony against Israel, against Judah. Listen to what would have been some of the final words that Josiah heard before he tore his clothes. These would have been some of the last words Josiah heard before he begins to repent. Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 27 says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. Why? That it may be there as a witness against you, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Josiah hears this, he sees it clearly, which explains why he tears his clothes. That's a sign of brokenness before the Lord. He's he's heard what God intends, and he not only sees that they are not living up to that, he also knows that they are deserving of the judgment laid out in that book of Deuteronomy. And so Josiah then commands a committee of five guys to go inquire of the Lord. A kind of way of prayer. He could have prayed, but he kind of goes to inquire of the Lord by sending these five guys off in response to this, to this prophetess by the name of Huldah. We don't know much about this gal other than the fact that she's a keeper of the wardrobe, probably something in the temple complex. So they go into the prophetess's house. There she is sitting there minding her own business, as it were. And these five guys ask uh, what Josiah should think about this failure to live up to the law. Huldah then responds to these five guys by telling them that the very same judgment 
that they learned about, that we learned about last week to Manasseh, he, she tells them that that's going to happen to Judah. That because of their idolatry, they're going to be exiled. Look at verse 17. She says, because they, that's Judah, because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. That's the the prophetess speaking in the place of the Lord, because they have forsaken me. And so the Lord had been patient with Judah, but his patience had worn out because of the ways Judah provoked the Lord to anger through their continuous, rampant idolatry. But take a look. Because of Josiah's response to the word, Huldah then goes on to say this in verse 19. So she just said, yeah, all the judgment's going to happen. They're going to be exiled. But then look at verse 19. But... Speaking in reference to Josiah, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Isn't that good to know? God hears prayer. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So Josiah is going to be able to escape that judgment because of his penitent heart. But if you remember Josiah's great granddad, Hezekiah, he had something similar happen to him. Y'all remember that a couple weeks back? Remember, he's given this notification that because of his kind of repentance, as it were, that he's going to get some extra time and die in peace and kind of miss some of the disaster that's coming. And if you remember, Hezekiah's response is to say, oh, great, then I'll just sort of hit the coast button. But that's not how Josiah responds to this word from Holden. Quite the opposite. In light of this, in light of hearing this coming judgment and yet his escape, that he's going to be able to die in peace, how does Josiah respond. Well, Josiah responds to this word to go on a campaign for national reform. In chapter 23, he gathers together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, as well as all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's got this huge representation, this kind of huge conference. We can imagine this would be sort of like some political national convention. He gets them all together or some church convention where they get them into this big hall and he goes up on the stage and he begins to talk to them. And he, Josiah, speaks to all of them. Josiah, not the priest, but the king, reads the Bible to the church, as it were. And after this, after he reads this testimony of the covenant, he reads this book of the law, he reads this to the, to the people that are there listening. In 2 Kings 23, 2 and 3, we learn after this that he and the people are there. They covenant together, saying that they are going to give themselves to God's word. We're going to do this. So he gets back up just like we're doing today. And he starts, all right, let me read this, let me read this. And he goes through maybe right through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And he gets to the end. And he's, all right, we're going to covenant together to do this. We haven't been doing this. And then they then begin to set off on this national campaign of idol destruction. I'm not going to read it all, but you should read all of this. It is fantastic. I was so tempted, but I'm always struggling to get that clock. Anyway. So good what they do. From 4 to 20, right? They just go on this national campaign of idol destruction. They start after this. Note the series. We're going to come back to this. They've committed to, each, to the Lord and to one another to do the, what the Lord says. And they set on this national campaign of idol destruction. They start, of course, in the temple. And they work their way out not only into Judah, but you see they actually even get into Israel, who, remember, by this point has already been exiled. And this is the most total idol destruction campaign we've ever seen. It reads similar to like somebody showing up to a hoarder's house, going inside and pulling all the stuff out and getting rid of it. I've done this before, right? Gone in these houses, I've helped my wife and I, we can tell you stories, right? Gone in there, we pull it all out of there and clean that house up on the inside and trash all the stuff once we get it out. That's kind of what happens. This idol destruction campaign includes the destruction of images to five different idols. Five different gods. Not including, look at verse 24, not including, of chapter 23 that is, not including these little household gods and idols. Five of them. 
It also includes tearing down altars to all these different gods as well as houses for male cult prostitutes that were built in all places inside the temple complex. This is crazy. Showing us, friends, that our culture's worship of sexuality is once again nothing new under the sun. And it also includes a disturbing trend of giving the death penalty to all these priests that were facilitating this idolatry. You can see that in verse 20, chapter 23. And we've seen this judgment on priests like this, these false priests. We've seen this before. You guys remember back in 1 Kings 18 when uh, Elijah had all of those 400 prophets to Baal. Remember, they were executed. Uh, We also saw back during Jehoiada's reign back in 2 Kings 11. And so this is the third instance of these priests being judged. And we recall from our study, right from two or three years ago, from Exodus chapter 22-20, that they were to do just that, to execute these priests, to bring them to the death penalty for those that were deviating from the Word of God. And the reason for this, again, is because Israel is a holy people, right? They were to be set apart. Their worship was to be set apart. They were to display God's glory to the world. They had been given God's law. They'd been given His blessing, His mercy. They were to, again, display that glory. And so these priests were supposed to be stewards of all of this word. And so if these priests were leading in the word correctly, leading the rest of the nation, therefore they too would help bring about glory to God and good for neighbor. But because they didn't, in similar ways to what we read about in James chapter 3, verse 1, teachers will be held to a higher standard. So in the same way, these priests are held to a higher standard. And so because they are teaching Israel to go sideways, then they're judged. And so what we have in front of us, friends, between verses 4 and 20 is the equivalent of a charred-out hoarder's possession that has been cleaned up on the inside. The house on the inside, as it were, of the hoarder's house has been cleaned. Everything's been drug outside, and everything has been destroyed. Josiah has gone from Jerusalem to Geba to Beersheba to Bethel in Israel, and he has not only pulled down all the idols and the altars of these false gods, he has burned all of these idols and these altars and put, crushed them to fine dust. Look at verse 4 of chapter 23. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out the temple of the Lord and all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Baal. And we ask, what's in Baal? Why did he bring them there? Well, look at verse 15. You have your answer. In Baal is the altar put up by Jeroboam to false gods. So what seems to be happening here is Josiah doesn't just drag the stuff out of the hoarder's house and just put it in the dumpster. He burns the stuff, and then after he burns the stuff, he takes the ashes, sticks it in a FedEx truck, and sends it back to where it began and says, here's your God, bro. That's how boss Josiah was, right? I mean, that's the greatest boss move I can think of other than a resurrection. This is awesome, right? It's amazing. I just was gawking over this for about an hour on Thursday or Wednesday, whenever it was. He does the same thing with these ashes in verse 6 when he throws uh, the ashes for the idol altars on the graves of those people that sacrifice to those false and destructive gods. He takes that and just throws it on the grave. So as to say, here's your gods. He is saying, Josiah is saying to all of Judah and and Josiah is saying to all of us that all other gods are dust. They all die. Meanwhile, the living God rules on. That's what he's saying. One more thing of note in verse 16, we find that all of this fulfills the prophecy spoken by the man of God. Y'all remember that? Go back to 1 Kings 13. You can even do that now. It's right at the very beginning, verses 1 and 2. Remember that man of God, this is, the, this is the dude that got straight up mauled by the lion. Remember that guy? Right? Remember, he was the one that made this prophecy that there was going to be this king by the name of Josiah that would come and bring about this reform. Boom, fulfillment. God's word is true and it comes true. After Josiah cleans out all the Israelite idolatry, as at least in the forms of it, we read in verse 21 that they then read from the book of the covenant and they have the Passover meal. And they take it, look at verse 22, this will blow your mind. 
After doing all this, they take the Passover meal, and the text says in verse 22, no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. I used to think this was like they hadn't taken a Passover meal at all. I think the emphasis is on that second word, no such Passover. In other words, there's never been one that was so clean, as it were, with all this idolatry out of the house. It's amazing. In verse 26, we read that he, uh, we did what we did last week, though, that in light, even though in light of all of this idolatry, all of this reform, nevertheless, verse 26, the Lord says, I'm still going to bring judgment because of the sins of Manasseh. And I know some of you had said, well, why? Like, why, why does the Lord have to do that? They've been cleaning it out. Well, friend, if you want to know the answer as to why the judgment still comes, even though they brought about this reform, the answer is to read Josiah's contemporary prophet by the name of Jeremiah. There you'll get your answer. You go read the book of Jeremiah and you find exactly what we see happening by implication here. Josiah was a true true worshiper of God and he did what was right. But while Judah did covenant as they did so often, their heart wasn't in it. They kept on giving themselves to idols. Jeremiah makes that clear. Friends, you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make them drink. Josiah led them faithfully, but the church wouldn't follow him. And so the Lord was provoked to defend his name, which he had planted there in Jerusalem to be seen for all the nations. And so therefore he was going to judge Judah and send them into exile along with Israel that's already there. That's how the book ends. See that next week. In verses 28 to 30, though, we read about the death of this great king, Josiah. He goes out to battle against Egypt. He's quickly killed in battle. They carry him off. They bring him back to Jerusalem where he's buried. So it's a sad ending to an otherwise fantastic king, maybe the greatest king in the history of Judah outside of David himself. And so we look at all of this and we ask that question that I asked at the beginning. Where do we see the vision for Restoration Church here? And I would add really any church, any gospel-believing church. Where do we see the vision? What are some pieces from this story that can help us as a church walk out our calling? and not wind up like Judah. Six words. Hear, repent, commit, destroy, remember, love. First, point of application from Josiah's life in this text. What we need to do as a church, we need to hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. How did all this amazing reform begin? Was it through some miraculous event? Was it through some amazing musical experience? Was it through some planning of a revival for a week to kind of bring it all about? No. The way that this amazing reform that came sweeping through Judah, this kind of revival, this reformation came because a guy picked up his Bible and read it and listened to it. That's it. God ordains ordinary means to bring about his extraordinary purposes. We read this in the Bible itself in Romans 10, 17, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And people in Judah and in Israel, people got bored with the Bible and became dazzled by the false gods that were around them. Not because the Bible is boring or because God is boring, but because they are boring. And I say that because I've spent at least, I don't know, the last 20 plus years studying this book, and I'm continually amazed at it. It's amazing. Most people don't take the time to read it or consider it. They reject it without having considered it themselves. I'm amazed, absolutely stunned by the way that this book explains the world we live in with great accuracy. I'm amazed with the specificity of prophecy that is fulfilled hundreds of years in advance of its writing, like we saw from the man of God. I'm amazed at its complexity, its beauty, its compelling narrative that not only explains the world, but how it explains me and all of my fears and all of my worries and all of my doubts, as well as my delights and my joy does that with great specificity. Friends, revival came to Jerusalem and all Judah and Israel because one man heard the Bible preached and decided to give himself to it. And that's what we're going to do as a church. That's what we've been doing. That's what we're going to keep doing. 
Folks, there's a reason why the churches that gave up on the Bible and started accommodating to the worship around them, there's a reason why those churches are empty. They have nothing to say that isn't already being said in Hollywood or in every state capital. Their fleeting words and their worship changes with each successive generation, so nobody is compelled to go in then, therefore, and hear about man's words about God. What they need and what we need is God's word to man, not man's words to God. At the end of the day, guys, who really cares what I think, right? I mean, who cares what this idiot thinks? I'm an idiot. Like, why would you care to come hear my opinion? What you and I need is to know what God thinks, what God says. That's what we do as a church. We give it to His Word, and we come up under Him and His Word. The first line of our church's statement of belief reads, We believe that the Holy Bible, consisting of the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, alone is the Word of God, being fully written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and therefore is without error in the the original manuscripts, and has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Friend, I don't have supreme authority. I have unauthority, but I don't have supreme authority. The elders of this church, we have unauthority, but we do not have a supreme authority. The church, you do. You have unauthority, but you do not have supreme authority. Popes and councils have erred and contradicted each other so many times I've lost count, and so they definitely don't have supreme authority. Christ is the one alone that has supreme authority. He's told us, and this is his word. So we submit to it. And so if we're going to see revivals in our own lives, if we're going to see revivals in our marriages and in our kids and in our church and even in our surrounding community, if we're going to see revival in nations over there in the Middle East, right, in Iraq, if we're going to see revivals there, it's not going to be by innovation. It's going to be by people doing what Josiah did and having the Bible be read and explained and come up under. So, beloved, give yourself to not only reading and memorizing the Word, give yourself to meditating on the Word studying it and thinking about it. Listen to it as you gather together in community groups. Listen to it and hear it in your own personal devotions. And when you get together with other people to read it and sit up under it, read good books about it. But how do we respond? We hear it. That's what we're doing this morning. How do we respond? We hear the word of the Lord. Second, we repent. We repent of any idolatry that it exposes in our lives. That's exactly what Josiah did. We hear the word, then we repent of any idolatry that it exposes. You see here, Josiah hears the word and tears his clothes. He then sends to inquire of the Lord. We might say in a way that he kind of prayed. And then look down there at verse 9. Hulda says, because your heart was penitent. The word there, guys, is more often translated tender. Tender, that's the word. That's the Hebrew word there. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when, I, when you heard how I spoke against this place. So because he repented, because his heart was tender and humble towards the Lord, he escaped judgment and died in peace. Josiah's revival began with the word and having heard it, he repented of not only his idolatry, but for the nation he was leading's idolatry. Repentance from idolatry, friends, is how we will respond to the hearing of the word when it exposes that idolatry in our hearts. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 17. The forthcoming judgment, it says there, is to be coming, it says, because they have forsaken me, that's the Lord talking, and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger. Guys, you need to know this. When we disobey God's revealed word in Scripture, it's described as forsaking God himself. Right? Like when you disobey a friend or a spouse, it's not as though you're just disobeying those words they said. You instinctively know, right? No, you're hurting them, your friend, your brother, your sister, your wife, your spouse. See, it's easy to think of the commands of scriptures as just words on a page, just mere religion, randomly arbitrary commands. But God doesn't see it that way, nor should we. These are the words of Christ. And therefore, to disobey them is to disobey Christ himself, which is exactly why Christ right, confronted Saul on the road to Damascus and says, why do you persecute me? We repent, not because we didn't do what a book said as such. We repent of our idolatry because we're sorry for breaking the heart of our King and our Savior who intends good for us in glory to him. 
We remember the teaching of Jesus in Luke 15 when he taught about repentance, right? He said that he said repentance is like finding a lost sheep. And when it's found, you celebrate. When finding a lost coin, you find it, you celebrate. Or finding a lost son, and he comes back and you celebrate. Repenting is dying to self, turning around and coming home to the Father. Expressing our sorrow for the ways that we loved other things more than we loved him. Brothers and sisters, we're reminded that Jesus' first sermon was repent. Repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1. And so we hear the word and we respond by repenting for all of the ways that we follow the patterns of the worship around us. By participating or approving in the worship that is all around us right here in Washington, D.C. That could be any number of things. For, for the way that maybe we treat our careers, the way that we treat our, think about our money, our travel schedule, our families, our marriages, our singleness, our own comfort, oftentimes, or sometimes at least, more important than the God that loved us enough to give himself. And so some of you need to repent this morning. Some of you need to see, I see idolatry in my life. I see the ways that I'm loving other things more than I love Jesus, my Savior, and I need to turn around. You need to hear the word. You've heard it. You've been hearing it through the book of Kings. You're hearing it, and you're saying to yourself, yeah, I've been conforming to the patterns. I've, I've started to notice in my life that I'm starting to think this is okay, or I'm starting to participate in that. And friend, you need to come back to Jesus. Understand that you've forsaken Him. It's not just words. It's Him. And He wants you for your good and His glory to come back to Him and to follow Him for that purpose. The church, friend, is the place of people who is the one group of people that should know that we're all messed up. And we should be able to come together. That's why we have this Lord's Supper and we call you those that are repenting and believing. We're the one group of people that know there's no reason to put masks on, guys. We're all screwed up. This guy included. This is the one group of people that should be able to openly say that because we got here, we got to that table because of Jesus, not because of our own good will. And so you're going to hear, you heard it this morning from Ray every week. You're going to hear pastoral prayers, right, where we're confessing sins of specificity. I know, because I've been one of these people, when sometimes Joey or Chris starts confessing stuff and it messes with you, and you're like, ooh, should we be saying that in public? Yes, right? We're going to hear specific hard sins. We're going to talk about that. We're going to confess that. We're going to confess. I'm hoping you're confessing struggles with sin in your community group. I'm hoping that you're confessing sins and repenting of that idolatry in your discipling relationships and individually between you and God and between you and a brother or sister. We daily die to self and live to Christ. And then third, after having heard the word, repented of idolatry, we then third do as Josiah did. We commit. We commit. We commit to Christ personally and corporately. Look again there, the passage, after Josiah hears the word and repents, he then in 2 Kings 23, he then commits to inquire of the Lord. That's back in verse 20, chapter 22, verse 13. He commits to inquire of the Lord for himself and for the people. You see that? Look down there, verse, verse uh, chapter 22, verse 22. Look at those. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah. And so as to his personal commitment, this uh, that is so astoundingly apparent when he's told that he will escape judgment and die in peace, almost all of us would have hit the coast button, right? Let's just be honest. I'm going to be good. We'd have been like Hezekiah. Ooh, right? I can think about this like when, when me and my brother got in trouble, right? And my, you know, when the truth kind of came out, I wasn't really in trouble. It was really my brother. And then, you know, like my mom and dad said, like, all right, well, you're good. You're fine. But we're going to go deal with right, with your brother. And they go in the back room and right, and you hear them, right, they're like, you know, it's not going well for your brother. And you're like, I'm cool playing video games. I'm fine. Well, it's him back there. He's, right. Like, that's not, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what Josiah does. Josiah goes on this campaign. Even though he's in peace, he still goes after the people. This is what Josiah does in 2 Kings 23. When he gathers Judah, he reads the Bible to them, and then he has them covenant together. Now, sitting right over here on this wall is our covenant. We signed that document, some 18 of us. We signed that document on that piano next week, 13 years ago. And thir- from 13 years ago till this day, if you remember this church, you too have signed it. And they're not just words on a page. 
These are not just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure some of you have done that in your membership discussion. Uh, I get it. Okay, do you believe the statement of faith? Yes. Right. Do you believe it's intended to live out the covenant? Yes. All right, next thing, right? No, these things are important. We see them covenanting together. This is what we're trying to do. Trying to do. Jesus didn't die so as to create with him a personal relationship that was disconnected from his body, the church. It's so much easier to follow Jesus on your own. It's so much easier to do that. And this culture will hold that up for you. I totally get why people are not into church membership. I totally do. It makes so much sense, right? I Yeah, if I wasn't convicted by Scripture, I wouldn't do it either. It places all these extra demands on you to be a member of a church, right? You've got to go to a class, you've got to sign documents, right? Not that that's biblical, but nevertheless, we just think it's helpful, wise. But being a member of a church, it gives all these biblical demands, and it gives definition to them for your good, right? We're, we're reminded it's better to what? To give than it is to receive. And so commit to not only giving your all to Christ, friend, but also commit to giving your all to Christ's church. Our church covenant lays out on that document, you can read it right there, it lays out uh, what the commitment to each other looks like. Statement of beliefs, this is what we believe. Church covenant, this is how we live out what we believe. We're going to do this together. It's a document that we sign and we don't forget. It's the way that we understand ourselves to, to enjoy the full benefits of the gospel that Jesus died and rose to save us from. The commitment of Christians to one another and membership as laid out in that covenant is our disciple-making plan for this church. It begins with our personal commitment to Christ and our corporate commitment to one another in baptism. It then lays out how we will knit our lives together so that we might display the name of Christ to our neighbors that need Him. And it lays out how we will care for one another and help each other on to get to heaven. And so, friend, if you have never, if you understand yourself to be a Christian and you've never joined a church, I understand why you might be a little hesitant. You probably don't think it's at all in the Bible. Let us just share with you that maybe it is. And then secondly, I understand that it's difficult because it does put responsibilities on you. But, friend, those responsibilities are for your good and the glory of Christ in your neighborhood. And if you're not, not a Christian, maybe you just need to start with committing to Christ. Just trusting Jesus. Maybe you're hearing this, thinking about, oh my goodness, all these ways that I have been just like Judah. I have all these idols, not in a temple, but in my heart. And you need to drag them out. Don't hold them up. Drag them out and give them to Jesus. And he'll burn them and take the ashes and throw them into hell. Give your life to Christ. Trust him to receive his forgiveness. And then commit to him and commit to his kingdom. So we, we will, at this church, we will hear the word. We will repent from idolatry. We will commit to Christ personally and corporately. Then after that, we will then fourthly destroy those idols that get in the way of our collective joy in Christ. We will destroy those idols that get in the way of our collective joy in Christ. That's what Josiah does. Fresh from their covenanting together, they set off on the campaign to clean up their dirty house, to destroy all their idols and idol makers. And when I say destroy, by this I don't mean Drag them outside of your home and burn them. I don't know. Maybe you need to do that. I don't know. I'm not telling you to do that, but maybe you need to burn your TV today. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, right? Maybe Some of you probably do need to throw that phone in a fire somewhere. Serious. Some of you do need for Instagram and other stuff. But anyway, I'm not telling you to do that. What I mean, <laughs> yeah, I might be one of those, by the way, just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> What we're talking about when we say destroy idols is, guys, you you need to know that it's easy to burn an altar. It's harder to burn a desire in your heart. It's easy to kind of throw that, maybe it's not, but but appendages called a phone. Like, it's easy to kind of throw that in the water. It's a difficult thing to get that desire out. And that's what we're talking about. Not only getting rid of the idols, but getting rid of those desires that feed those idols. Listen to Colossians 3. Verse 5, it says, In light of the gospel, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. You guys all thought idolatry was in the Old Testament. It's in the New. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry, again, is disordered loves, loving things more than Christ. And so repent of them and then put to death whatever feeds those desires. Kill the behaviors or the beliefs 
and the things that feed those behaviors or beliefs. Josiah went out of his way to not only burn the idols, but also to tear down the altars and get rid of the priests that were facilitating all of this idolatry. We got to do the same thing. We need to hear the word, repent in our hearts, commit to Christ and one another, and then destroy anything that is feeding those desires for, uh, so that we might not forsake the God that we love. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, for if you live to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, this is what we're doing at church. This is what we're doing in community groups. This is what we're doing when we say have disciple-making relationships. It's so that you guys can hold each other accountable to not just sort of putting on the happy face and acting like a good, strong Christian when you've got all these struggles. You need to get them out. And that's what the life of the church, we're trying to do life together to not just get rid of them, but to get rid of the desire. Fifth, after doing all of this, we remember the gospel. After doing all of this, we keep remembering the gospel together. Isn't it interesting, guys, that the Passover meal is taken after all the idolatry is dealt with? Look at verse 21 and 23, chapter 23. The Passover meal for Josiah and Judah would have been rehearsing in the Old Covenant how the Lord had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and to the freedom of the land that he would give. That Passover meal was meant to remind them of who God is and what God has done and what he'd promised to do so that they would trust him and not forsake him. That's what that meal was supposed to do. But apparently Judah had been so riddled with idolatry that there hadn't been a Passover meal like that one. It was ripe for eating and drinking. At least externally, the nation had been cleaned out because of Josiah's faithful and courageous and tireless leadership. The central part of that Passover meal was two elements that you see right in front of you. The central part of that meal, Passover meal, was the roasting of the Passover lamb and the eating of the unleavened bread. The lamb would have reminded Josiah and others that it was by the blood of an unblemished land painted on the door frame that saved them from the angel of death. That's what that meal was supposed to have done. Remind them it was the blood of an unblemished lamb that saved them from the angel of death, leading them to the door of their freedom. And then the unleavened bread was to remind them that all of that happened quickly so that they would leave joyfully with the gold and the silver and the wealth of the nations upon their back. They didn't have to do, in other words, they didn't have to do anything other than trust the Lord. And it was by that meal, hundreds of years later, that Jesus Christ taught what that meal was always intended to point to. It was meant to point to himself. This is the meal that he had, that Passover. He's having a Passover meal before he goes to the cross. He, Jesus, taught that night. He was the Passover lamb. He said, drink of his blood that was offered for idolaters like me, like you, on the cross. He was the Passover lamb, so his judgment, his blood that was spored, would absorb that judgment that Judah had to deal with. Eat, he would then say, of the bread his body offered as a sacrifice to then lead us in the wealth of nations to our freedom. Quickly, because he did it, not us. We just enjoyed it. You'll hear me say this in a minute. But it's not just anyone that can take this meal, this Passover meal, this Lord's Supper meal. Just like not just anyone could have taken the Passover meal with Josiah. It was only for those like Josiah who first heard the word of the Lord, repented of their idolatry because of their brokenness. And then secondly, then they have committed to Christ, committed to the Lord, committed to the Passover lamb as Lord and Savior, believing that he has atoned for all of your idolatry. That's who it was for and overcame it in the resurrection, having taken the first sign of the covenant, which is the sign of baptism. In Josiah's day, that would have been circumcision. You've got to be circumcised before you take that meal. So in the same way for us, baptism is that first sign, that you take that first sign so that you might then take the ongoing sign. To testify of our daily, right, daily, repenting, believing on the Lord, crushing, putting to death those idols, trusting in the Lord to do it, remembering as we come, we're going to do it in just a minute, we're going to come, all of us, remembering, we come to the table, remembering it wasn't us, it was him, it was the Passover lamb that destroyed all of our idolatry. Reminding us of that, remembering the gospel, so that every time we come together remembering this gospel, we remember to be reoriented by it, restored by it. 
And we do this as a church. We take this meal as a church two times a month because we know we need to remember the gospel. It serves as a kind of placeholder for us as a family sitting around a table, remembering this placeholder that first and third of every Sunday of every month, we are reminding ourselves of what story we are living for and what story we are not living for and how it happened. And we go to the table to remember the gospel and all of its promises of our life eternal with Christ, our Passover lamb together. And then finally, we've repented. We've heard the word. We've repented of our idolatry. We've committed to Christ and to one another. Right? We then personally and corporately work together to destroy those idols. We remember the gospel and the Lord's Supper. And then finally, we love the Lord. We love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might to live according to his good word. Look down there at 2 Kings 23, 25. I'm about done here. Josiah did what he did, not because it was easy, but because it was hard. You see that? Look at that verse, 2 Kings 23, 25. It says of him, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. That is until Jesus. But he loved God with all, loved his neighbor with all. And that's what we do. Love, guys, is always hard. Love is never easy. Just ask your grandparents, right? Ask them, how have they been married for 50, 60, 70 years? They're not going to say, well, it's easy. Yes, we say, I tell, say all the time, my wife is easy to love. But listen, marriage ain't easy, right? Love's hard. Love is hard because it demands commitment, not for one day, for one week, but for a lifetime. And that's why so few people really sustainably love one another, much less Christ. It's easy to pray a sinner's prayer or walk an aisle and be baptized and be done. It's easy to do like these Israelites apparently did and sort of like, yeah, yeah, we, we covenant, and then just go back to doing what they were doing. It's another thing to sign up for that, knowing that I'm going to do this forever because Christ is worth it, and I'm trusting him to give me the strength to work it out. And doing all of that while being in the world but not of the world. Love like that is hard because of the gods that are around us trying to steal our hearts, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. That's hard. Not easy. But love never fails. Love like that never comes to an end. The worldly kind of love is flippant and it's fickle and it does fail. Love like this doesn't. And we know, guys, at some level, Josiah, great a king as he was, he failed. We don't know how or when he failed. He's as, he's as marble a figure there as there is in the Bible, but he was not the Messiah. He was a king, but he wasn't the king. When he showed up, we saw, when Jesus shows up, we saw what it really looked like to love God with all. And not only did he love his heavenly father, Christ, he loved his own to the end. That's what his disciple John said of him in John 13 when he eats that Passover meal, just like Josiah did right before he goes to the cross. John says in John 13, he says he loved them to the end. And of course, we see that in the cross. You doubt the love of God for his father and for his people. Look at the cross. He loved them to the end where Jesus, the greater Josiah, lays down his life for us. And so how could we not then love him back as he loved us? Not as a way of earning his love, but as a way of responding to it. That's what we're trying to do here at Restoration Church. At the end of the day is to teach you, to teach us how to love Jesus. and To do that together in this world that tries to pull us away from that. It's hard, but it's good and it's right. And we're going to love you enough to when we see you straying away, we're going to call you back. Not because of some any other religious principle that's disconnected from Christ, but because we love you, we're going to call you back. We hear the word together. We repent of idolatry. We commit to Christ uh, individually and corporately. We destroy idols. We don't manage idols. We destroy them. We remember the gospel. We do all of this because we love Christ. And so, friend, if you don't love Christ, you will not like this church. And if you do love Christ, as imperfect as we all are, you'll love him the way you'll be seen to be loving him is by the way you love his people. Jesus said that. That's not my word. That's his word. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so that's what we're going to try to do here. We do it imperfectly, but we're going to try. It's easy to live isolated kind of Christian lives. It's harder when you get inside to try to do all of this covenanting together. But that's what Jesus, that's the mission he gave us to do. So we're going to try to do that as best we can with God's help. And so again, you can see why this, why so few people sign up for a journey like this. In the same way, people couldn't understand why people would, anybody would want to do all of this work to go to the moon, right? It's hard, but that's why we do it, because he's worth it. And Jesus says, as they treated me, they're going to treat you the same way. He told us that the life of the Christian is cross-shaped and glory-bound, Right? And so in the same way, our life is going to be cross-shaped. It's going to be hard. But you've got to keep your eyes, as you heard Daniel say, you've got to keep your eyes on Christ. He's our glory. He's our hope. And that's going to give you the strength for us to do this together. And I think at the end, when you cross those heavenly Jordan rivers and you make it into the new Jerusalem by the Lord's strength, not by your own, you will get there and you will say, I am so glad that I gave my all. You'll only have one regret, that you didn't give more. And God loves you. He's for you. He's gone before you. He's worth giving all to, and his people is worth doing the same, that we might try to bring some restoration to. What a name for a church. We at Restoration Church exist to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. Right here in Washington, D.C., Ward 3, and beyond. We're going to try to plant churches that do the same and support churches that are doing the same work. And eventually, Jesus will come back. And we will be glad, again, that we gave our all to him as Josiah did. Let's pray together. Lord, we know, as I just said, that Josiah wasn't a perfect man. But we're thankful for all the ways that he shows us Christ. Oh, the joy to consider that while Josiah brought about a reform, it wasn't complete. The greater Josiah brings about a reform that is. Finished. Jesus, you did it all. We love you. Forgive us for all of our idolatries and ways in which we love other things more than you. And thank you that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. So teach us to hear the word. Teach us, God, we pray to repent of any idolatry. Teach us to commit to you personally and to one another. Teach us, God, to destroy all that's feeding those idols. Teach us, Lord, we pray to remember the gospel and never forget it. And teach us to do all of this with a love for you and one another such that your name is displayed right here in D.C. and beyond. That's what we're trying to do. Forgive us for the ways we don't do it well. And help us on, we pray, for your good name. Amen.